This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And what's brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Scenario Wait Points. Choosing Names. Medicine Show Politics. And Time Fixing DC Movies. You are cute, you are cunning, you are fierce. And of course that is true of beloved Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff listeners, but what I'm talking about here are your stats in Magical Kitties Save the Day from our friends at Atlas Games. Magical Kitties Save the Day is a role-playing game for players of all ages. Play as a cat with magical powers. Save your human from corrupted robots, evil witches, money problems, and more. Even young children can learn to GM and run the game for their friends. A solo play option is available, too, for loner kitties. Magical Kitty Save the Day is kickstarting as of July 16th. You can learn more at atlas-games.com slash magicalkitties or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But no, that's not Peter Frampton on that double album gatefold. That's Tom Petty, because, Robin, the waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> and that's what we're here to talk about, scenarios in which PCs have to wait around before getting to the fireworks factory or the next monster attack or whatever it happens to be. For some mimetic reason, there has to be a week in between werewolf attacks or a whole month if they're a full moon type werewolf. So, Robin, how do we handle the waiting, which, again, per Dr. Petty, is the hardest part? Right. So uh, this is one of those, uh, as you suggest, classic uh, mystery setups in which the heroes uh, are kind of uh, occasionally stall out and a new development has to occur in order for the story to, to move forward. Uh, as you suggest, it's a staple element. Uh, some, uh, If there's an Agatha Christie thing with multiple uh, killings, that would be an example of that. So the Ten Little Indians uh, uh, set up. And uh, a huge number of X-Files episodes, for example, have uh, Mulder and Scully, rather than going around and kind of actively investigating things, they check out a scene, discover that it's mysterious, and then they hang out in the hotel and do some banter, and then something else happens, and then they respond to that. In fairness, if you have a choice between hanging out in a hotel room with Jillian Anderson and investigating a UFO murder, I know which one I'm picking. Yes, and with the pacing of a television show or a novel, this is not an issue. that You're just as happy to see the uh, the banter between Mulder and Scully, uh, and in some episodes more so than you are to see the mystery solved. <laughs> and, uh, you know, only... In the weaker episodes, do you notice that they're not really doing much? So even, uh, you know, the, the classic episode about the hillbillies in the, in the old, uh, the mutant hillbilly episode, they're waiting around to do stuff, but it's still, uh, you know, it has momentum and works perfectly well. So how do we um, mimic that in uh, role playing? Well, the thing you don't do, first of all, is let the players wait for things to happen. Right. And you, and you, and you don't pixel bitch every, 
every single minute of the week between murders or month between murders. Uh, you know, all right, it's Tuesday. What are you doing? All right, it's Wednesday. What are you doing? All right, it's Thursday. What are you doing? You don't do that. Right. Um, so what we do is we use the flash forward technique. Uh, and so uh, as long as the players have things that they want to go and do, uh, you let them go and do that thing. But when they seem to run out of things to uh, actively engage with, you just sort of move forward into the story and say, so uh, at the next full moon, where are you? Um, and so right. that you're moving them forward uh, and you're uh, never letting them be uh, bored. So you can describe the characters as being stymied. Uh, you can, well, after two weeks of fruitless uh, legworks, uh, you know, you've got uh, the coffee stains on your, uh, on your lapel are uh, browner than ever and your feet are tired. Uh, and then a call comes in and it's someone, uh, you know, cause a call coming in is actually a way that the story is often advanced in a, uh, a mystery or a police uh, procedural. <laughs> the, the players in the game that I'm running right now, the fall of Delta green game, this is literally right now. They have to wait until this, the, the solstice for the big thing that's going to happen. They know it's going to happen. The solstice. That's not a question. So their choice of what to do is go pester the ghouls more. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh, I tend event. to be bored. Let's, let's go get ourselves nearly killed all the time. Yes. And so this can be, <laughs> uh, uh, the, the next technique, because, uh, if the answer to this question is you flash forward, we've covered that. So, um, the other possibility then is that you are building in other, uh, avenues, uh, and subplots for the uh, characters to pursue to distract themselves uh, from the fact that they're waiting for you to flash forward. Right, exactly. And so that's fills the structural equivalent of the scene where Mulder and Scully hang out in the hotel room and have banter about something. Um, and so that can be straight up uh, banter and character interaction, right? You can drop a, a drama system style scene into the middle where they, you know, you, uh, you, you can sort of call a scene where, you know, while you're, uh, in the library waiting for the, uh, the man with the, uh, unquenchable flame to show up, you, uh, finally get into it about, uh, what you saw back at the old mill and scene. Mm -hmm. And then you have them do a scene. And then, and then at the end, when you want them to be interrupted, the man comes in with the unquenchable flame. And so, uh, the other alternative though is the idea that you have cases of the week intersecting with uh, a meta plot. Uh, once again, this is an X-Files uh, structure uh, technique that was later improved upon by uh, by other shows. Most notably Veronica Mars. Yes. Um, so then you can have the other storyline kick in. Uh, and so it's not uh, quite so obvious a device uh, that you're moving forward to the, oh, and now it's, uh, it's Solstice. So, uh, and I guess one fun trick to do is to distract them enough that they can be in the middle of something big in the B plot and you go, Oh, you've lost track of the fact it's suddenly solstice in a couple of hours. And then you have to have them go run and do the thing. Right. They have to scramble. I mean, that, that, I mean, that's a good general piece of advice anyway. If uh, I can say a general piece of advice this early in the segment is to always have the world of the campaign feel like a lot is going on. And that, a lot is up to you and your players, however much you can handle it. But if you present a world in which things are always happening, whether that's NPCs with their own agendas or bad guys with a plan or uh, proactive players who are wanting to romance that uh, prince or um, uh, bully that ogre or go find ghoul tunnels and get lost in them, whatever it is, then that's good because that 
gives you the sense that there's a whole world out there as opposed to just this narrow little colored area on the map where that they're allowed to play and that no, they can't go and do anything else. And that I guess the trick is, like I say, to keep all of those other things interesting and compelling drama as opposed to pixel bitching where it's like, um, all right, I'm going to go look at the old pancake factory. Up, oh, nope, there's no Joker there. All right, I'm going to go look at the old tricycle factory. Nope, no Joker there. I'm going to go look at the old uh, Weedabix factory. Nope, no Joker there. Right. And then even even if they in the fifth factory they find, oh, no, there's criminals and they're setting up a, a counterfeiting sting and you can beat them up, it still, it still feels rote and boring. But if you sort of provide a lot of other stuff going on, you can say – you know, during the week when you've done this, you've also rolled out the whole South Factory District. The Joker isn't any, any of them. Right. And and part of this depends on how big a leap in time you, you're planning for them to make, right? That if you're, uh, if right. it's one of those things where you're all in the remote uh, castle and the next murder is going to happen at midnight, uh, you've only got to, you know, and it's 9 p.m., you, you don't have to answer those questions. You just right. go, and now the clock's sooner than you would have thought. The clock strikes midnight. Clocks begin to yes. chime. Um, whereas, uh, you know, in your example of waiting for the solstice, uh, it's uh, helpful to have, uh, uh, as you suggest, sort of uh, sandboxy stuff uh, in addition to the plot-driven stuff for the players to go off and explore. And something like that's sort of buildy or achievement-oriented, like mapping a ghoul tunnel or, uh, you know, working on your uh, Babbage engine or, or whatever it is. Uh, can be a sort of a fun contrast to that. But what you can also do with those long uh, periods of time is suggest that the characters actually have other lives and things that they care about and stuff yeah. that they have to do. Right. So you can say, okay, well, it's two weeks till solstice. Well, you know, you still, you know, have a job at the pancake factory. Uh, how do you, uh, so presumably you're just working and, and making a living. Is there something weird that happens to you there? Or it's like, well, well what about your family? Right. It's your boyfriend's birthday. What are you doing? Right. Uh, and many games, uh, will, uh, encourage you to, su- to supply a cast of characters who, uh, for example, in, in some gumshoe games represent your pillars of sanity, the people you draw on. Uh, and so actually get them in and say, okay, yeah, it's your, daughter's dance recital uh today and and you're going to that or rather you ask the, the players to say so what are you just doing in your regular lives that's uh that's mm-hmm. calling on your attention and then if it's their daughter's dance recital that's when you have a sudden development in one of the other cases and yes. they're like oh uh, no, this always happens so mad I, I wish my kid just played video games all the time <laughs> that's right why does my daughter, why does my daughter have to care about life? Yes. Haven't, haven't this series of monster attacks taught her that life is just to be you know, squandered? If she was just playing Minecraft all the time. She wouldn't even notice that I have to go off and, uh, deal That's with the That's right, murder. but I'm a terrible father and covered in icor and coffee stains. <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing about that is, you know, if, if dad smells like icor, you're going to grow up and you're going to go into the family business as well. Yeah, it's, it's olfactory job heredity is, is remarkably understudied, I think. Right. Um, and so another thing is if you're using this, and, and I would say that this is not a formula that you, uh, that it's worth doing because it is so archetypal, but not something that you want to rely on every single week because it does require some extra work. And, uh, it's preferable most of the time to have the momentum in the player's hands and allow them to always be going, what do we do next? What do we do next? Uh, but if you have players who tend to stall out during things where they're expected to drive it, it can actually be a little relaxing for them. To, you know, be okay with the fact that there's a, a two week break and that they can, or that they can go off and, uh, you know, I have a, a one player in particular who likes to envision his character going off and doing quotidian things and that 
uh, gives you the opportunity for that. But it is generally something that you uh, want to do sparingly. And we've mentioned the sort of Ten Little Indians uh, uh, version of characters being killed off uh, over time. And the thing about that is your temptation, uh, and this is sort of a separate point, but one worth making and one that doesn't warrant a whole segment, is uh, if you're writing that sort of scenario, make sure that you don't write it so that it's actually the player character's getting killed off in sequence because that's a drag and they'll and object, they'll object to, it. to it and they might fight back and ruin your cool murder plot. They, yes, exactly. And so uh, in that case, you are always the player characters seeing a uh, group of uh, uh, game master characters getting slowly bumped off and you have some reason to be in- invested in that not happening to them. Uh, but with the exception of sort but of ideally a, not so invested that you just gang onto one of them and prevent the murderer from getting to the third uh, and most interesting killing. Right. Um, well, the, the, uh, the trick there, of course, is that there's always an unexpected way that the, the killing takes place right. or somebody yeah. else is killed in their place or, you know, they weren't the number, the next victim at all, that sort of thing. And in a, a one shot scenario, of course, a lot of these tools are, uh, that we talked about in the first bit of this segment are not necessarily available to you. So you're right. not going to have, you know, ongoing ghoul tunnel exploration. In a, or... a one shot, it, it very much has to be a fast yeah. forward type moment because you're, you're doing a one shot. There's no, there's no other place for the narrative to go. You, you, you can't just be ambling all over the place, stream of consciousnessing your way to, you know, a confrontation with Amigo. You sort of have to get to the damn fireworks factory. Right. Um, and the flip side of that though is that the, killing off the player characters thing, you can start doing that in the last hour and that's uh, fine oh, yeah. if not expected. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, at con games, I think players take it very personally if they're not being killed off or driven crazy. Uh, yes. Well, on that note, it's time for us to uh, consult one of our pillars of sanity, which of course are the uh, commercials that hold up this very podcast sponsors. along with our Patreon backers, and then uh, see what, what mysterious segment might possibly work on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world?
The chatter of IBM Selectric keys the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon into a jelly jar remind us that we are once more entering that hut of huts whose slogan is to teach you how to write good. And Patreon backer Dustin Mincy has asked how to write good specifically when it comes to writing the thing I'm the worst at is giving something a name from people, things, and places. I'm just not good at coming up with names. And that really leaves me stumped both at the word processor and the table. If a new character crops up, can Ken and Robin help me name things better? And, uh, I always like a question that can end with a resounding heck. Yes, (laughs) because Ken and Robin can help all things. So, uh, naming is a fine art. Um, and, uh, so to, to start with the last of those points, um, if I, um, am running a, a game where I know I'm going to have to come up with a bunch of uh, names uh, on the fly. I will make sure to prepare in advance by having just a list of names that I can use without having an attachment necessarily to what name goes with what character. So just a bunch right. of a long list. And then when I know the characters want to know the name of the gas station attendant or the lizard who lives on the other side of the ridge and has oracles for them that I have a bunch of uh, fallback positions. So, you know, maybe, you know, inspiration will strike me and I will just know that the guy's name is CSR Roja or that the uh, lizard's name is uh, Ilkpul. But uh, in general, I, I will have probably a better uh, chance of success if I have names laid out for me because whether you're talking about role-playing or fiction, you can really tell the difference between a name that feels like a real person's name and actual names that people walk around with uh, in daily life. Sometimes real people's names seem too eccentric or or uh, unfamiliar for people to want to use them in fiction. And that's why, you know, you have a lot of, you know, Sean Stewart's and, uh, uh, you know, Stella McLean's. Uh, but Sean Stewart, the actual fiction author, is now saying, hey, man. <laughs> yes, but... Uh, well, 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 that's the thing, right? Is that right. Th- th- there are names that are very uh, common in whatever uh, country or time that you're dealing with. And so the, the first question you want to ask yourself is, do you want a name that is not particularly redolent or evocative? Do you want the most common sort of name at that time? Or do you want something uh, that is more off the beaten path or, in fact, something of a, a metonym, a name that evokes mm-hmm. the qualities of the character? So uh, to start with the first bit of that, there are different tools that allow you to research what the most common, particularly first names, because those are the ones that change most dramatically over time, uh, were at different times. So for the United States, the U.S. Census, uh, their website includes a feature that allows you to search for the uh, hundred or I think even a a thousand most common names for every year. Um, And so if you want someone who just sounds uh, like they were born in uh, 1922, you can look up the 1922 list. And uh, uh, up until very recently, the men's first names are it's the apostles, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and then the, and the women's names change over time. And then over the past uh, 20 so years, uh, suddenly the men's names have started. Uh, a they've radically shifted, and and then they are also really changing with fashion with not even yeah. within generations but sub yeah, for, for 1500 so, years you couldn't go wrong with a saint's name right for men or women yeah so john and and martin and and matt are yes. now being replaced by caden and jaden and, and, uh, and braden and although you know saint caden I, I i what is he the patron saint of 
Juiceables, I guess. <laughs> one of one of the examples of uh, a terrible name that is is action character names. The movie Source Code is maybe the worst best example of this. Uh, it's a great movie. It's super great. It, it nails everything. But Jake Gyllenhaal's character is you're expected to believe his name is Coulter Stevens, and it's like you know someone said Colt Stevens. No, that's too on the nose. Coulter Stevens. And it, it's just, it, it, it's ridiculous. And, uh, and those are the kinds of names that unless you are playing a game in which someone is playing a action movie character, don't do that. I mean, don't, don't name a character Brock. Uh, don't name a character Colt. Don't name a, I mean, unless you're, you know, again, if you're playing worldwide wrestling, I guess every character is named Brock and Colt. Yes. And the really unique characters are the ones named Justin. But really. The one I will throw out there is, is, uh, from Days of Thunder. The Tom Cruise character is Cole Trickle. Cole Trickle. Cole Trickle, yes. I almost could believe that though, because that sounds like the kind of name you'd come out of Arkansas with. It, it and could then be. people would be like, well, that's just a regular old trickle name. My grandpappy's name was Cole, but it is a dumb name. Right. Um, <laughs> and so then you, you're, we're getting now into the realm of, of the metonym where, you know, Cole Trickle says NASCAR driver, driver mm-hmm. right? And so, yes, there might, they might well have, Use some of my other methods for finding names. For example, if I know I will find surnames by finding local newspapers and looking at the obituary sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know uh, people who've lived in an area for a while, and you you know you obviously calibrate. H.P. Which... Lovecraft basically did that. He would go and look at gravestones in an area and, and write it down. And so if you are up in Brattleboro, Vermont, you can see every last name. In, uh, Whisper in Darkness is just right there on the gravestones. Right. And what you tend to do is, uh, either again, you will pick the more quotidian names that don't have an obvious footprint to them, or you will find the, you know, the one family in that area that had a very distinctive name and you'll call all your uh, characters that. Um, for international names, uh, I will go to the Internet Movie Database and find a film, uh, made at about the time, uh, that the, uh, generationally I want the characters to be, assuming, um, of course, that I'm uh, dealing with characters that uh, existed during the lifespan of cinema, Mm -hmm. and then I'll mix and match first and last names, and you, of course, want to make sure that you don't pick two obviously famous ones, right? So, uh, you know, if you you name your character Ursula Mastriani... People will catch on. People will catch on. Right. I I like to go to uh, Olympic teams. Yes, uh, sports uh, teams are are great for that as well. And uh, Olympics are great because the databases are very, very complete. And so if you want a guy who is from Vietnam and is uh, active in the 1930s, there's Vietnamese athletes that are that are out there, and so you can find them. I, I, again, you take the first name and the last name, and you try not to have a character named, you know, uh, Lance Spitz or something. But you can do that with with a lot. I mean, um, uh, Olympic athlete names, and then again, you can vary it by sport. So if you want sort of CIA type guys, go to the crew. You know, the guys who are rowing. If you want a different uh, feel, you can go to soccer, you can go to boxing, and those provide you with with a lot of really uh, good names that you would not have thought of. When I was doing um, uh, Dracula dossier, I think I, I burned through decades of Romania's <laughs> <laughs> representation at yes, the Olympics. Yeah, you had a high demand for Romanians. Right. And that is something that I did also in, in Dracula dossier and, and other uh, games will do, is... We had a page in the back that just listed a bunch of common names because the GM is not going to necessarily know what a Romanian name is. And if you're running a game in a, in an unfamiliar to you 
era where you can't just say Caden uh, Lopez. That sounds like a name. I'm done. You know, you may want to dig in and look at a list of ancient Greek names if you're running in ancient Greece or you a list of Chinese names if you're running in China and you don't exactly know how those uh, names work. There's a web page called Kate Monk's Onomasticon which is just a whole bunch of names send from a bunch of different sources and then sorted out by, you know, country and, and era. And it's, it's a good first jump. It is not going to solve all your problems, but it will give you that list of names in a, in a panic for an NPC or get your mind thinking if you're writing and are like, I, I my character is from, uh, ancient Parthia. I wonder what their names were. And then Kate Monk will, will start you off. Right. There are also various, uh, random name generators, uh, on the web, uh, some of them better than others. Um, I'm not mentioning specific ones because my experience has been that whenever I, uh, specify a web resource, uh, it immediately goes away. Well, so, I'd hate to have killed Kate Monk's onomasticon. Yeah. So I think that one's pretty, uh, solid. It might stick around, but you never know. And then we come to the question of, do you pick the name that uh, fits the character you have in mind? Or sometimes picking a name will tell you stuff about the uh, character. And there can be obvious ones, like uh, someone uh, is from a uh, multicultural background. If, if they're named, uh, you know, Julia Takakura, that mm-hmm. uh, immediately implies something about their background. Maybe not something you want to heavily uh, uh, lean on in, in being the thing that defines them, but it's a little added little... Uh, touch of flavor there, or you may uh, pick a name for a, a character, like a uh, uh, the random generator came up with the name Re Loretto uh, for me, and I that sort of informed uh, who that character became uh, when I put her in uh, my uh, a novel that goes with the uh, with the Yellow King series, the the missing and the lost, and the fact that someone goes through life with one name rather than another name. Uh, sort of indicates something about them and, su- you know, suggests, um, and ideally in a sort of a subliminal and, uh, sort of sideways lateral rational way, uh, who they are and, and, uh, and how they'll be, uh, presented to the, to the reader. It, it, it has, uh, perhaps not a, a literal clear punch you in the face, uh, sort of meaning like coal trickle, uh, right. but, uh, on a more subliminal level, it tells you a little bit about that character and, and begins to flavor them. So it's also a great way to sort of uh, surprise yourself with uh, different elements. And, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a random seed can help you create a character that has um, more uh, sense of dimensionality to them than you would necessarily come up with uh, if you just, uh, you know, did your standard thing as you... Uh, Think of your character and then give them the name that best fits. Uh, Dustin also asked about places. I think maybe we can talk a little bit about toponymy, the art of place naming. I've, I've, there's no substitute just for looking at a lot of maps. Uh, that gives you a sense of what names feel real on a map and what doesn't, even in a fantasy world. Uh, the names, unless they're just completely arbitrary bunches of, con- of consonants, they have to make sense in that fantasy world. So um, if your fantasy world has a, has a made up language, like uh, Tolkien's Middle Earth, then you're naming things in that in that made up language, and that's a whole different barrier. But if you're doing something in a language that isn't an Earth language, but you've still made up, but you haven't done all the rules, then it just has to come down to assonance. How does the name sound? Edgar Rice Burroughs is sort of the halfway spot between Tolkien and 
me at the table, uh, in that he sort of came up with all the words and then a vowel or all the names and then an R or something like that. And that's, and that is, is a very simplistic version of actual linguistic convention, but it can constrain you uh, usefully. So if you are coming up with this, this fantasy continent and you're like, okay, the people who lived there were simple, savage, uh, savages who lived in, in peace with nature and then they were invaded by the elves. And so, um, the older names are all going to be like a shell port and uh oak tower and then the elves come in and they give them long ridiculous Celticy names and so the new stuff that the elves built is all going to have uh a name that uh is it they've all got to have five syllables and even that is going to get your mind thinking and so it's Brythingwinaft and okay Brythingwinaften that's a great elf name bam that's a that's a name of a thing and it, if you just start having the notion of what sounds like what feels like what has the rhythm of the people who live there, then you'll get the idea. And again, it's a million times easier on Earth, see previous Start With Earth discussion, in which you are saying, well, okay, this is set in ancient Hellenistic world. First of all, I can look and see what it's called. But even if I can't, I can say, oh, these are Alexander's Teeth. That's the name of those mountains. Uh, oh, over there, that is um, uh, that is the Chrysae. That's the, the, the River of Gold, because everything was called the Chrysae until you got to it and discovered, oh, no gold, sorry. Um, <laughs> and, and so it, it the becomes river very, very... Switch. Very, very easy for you to, um, uh, to sort of fall into it, assuming that you have looked at enough of the maps of, of the region to sort of feel like what makes sense. So if you're in New England, uh, towns can all have good old Englandy names. So you can say, why, this is New Lincoln, sir. It's a fine town. It's been here since 1644. And then if you're, you know, in the West, it can be, uh, Los Perdidos, uh, maybe because it was named the dangerous place by, by uh, some trappers way back in the in the in the day in, in frontier times, and so you have a sense of what parts of the country sound like what parts of the country. And again, that's just a matter of getting yourself an atlas or going on Google Maps and zooming in until you see a bunch of names and look at them long enough to get the pattern. And what you can internalize that pattern relatively rapidly because it's not involving memorizing a ton of things. It's just about what does and doesn't fit. It's just exercising that pattern matching. Then you can think, you know, if I were going to come up with a name of a suburb of Chicago, it would have to have a tree name and either Oak Lake or Park in it. And so Pine Park. Yeah, that could be a suburb of Chicago. Oak Lake. Yeah, that's a suburb of Chicago. Yes. And it, names change after real estate developers. Uh, right. Yes. Up. Um, another thing that you can do with, uh, invented languages, uh, whether it's for, uh, uh people or for places is if you have enough examples of that invented language, which either you have made up yourself or uh, the creator of the setting has uh, in- invented. Uh, there are a couple of sites that have like a, a word scrambler uh, function where if you input a hundred different words, it will then spit out another hundred words that kind that kind of base itself on the rules established by those hundred words. Now, a bunch of them are going to be, uh, unsayable or seem awkward or look ugly. Right. Uh, but either if, if you just pitch those ones or if you then alter them to make them more euphonious, uh, that they will uh, seem like they are following the rules of uh, a language that we are unfamiliar with without actually going all through the trouble of inventing Dothraki. Um, and <laughs> even the process of sort of smoothing those names out, it also matches the way uh, things happen in, in real life over time that initially, you know, a place name may have been created by one culture, 
And then another culture uh, comes along, perhaps after displacing the first one, and, you know, they adopt the place name, but then over time, uh, the vowel shift in it or it gets shorter. Um, and so, you know, names uh, of places over time become more euphonious, even as their uh, reasons for the naming become more and more obscure. So uh, it certainly makes sense. And also there's a process of, you know, if a a uh, person came from uh, from Europe in the early part of the uh, 20th century or the late part of the 19th century, uh, and then they arrived here on those shores, chances are that they uh, shortened their unfamiliar-sounding name to fit in. And so uh, there are uh, different, uh, you know, Americanizations of uh, uh, common names that uh, people uh, adopted or, you know, whether it's just chopping off the last syllable to seem less Jewish so that, uh, you know, the Goldbergs became the Golds and the Silverbergs became the Silvers or something more complicated uh, went on. That's another way that you can sort of uh, subtly indicate social change, even with changes uh, in history of completely imaginary cultures and places. Uh, well, one thing that is not imaginary on this show is our need to keep it moving. So we're going to move uh, through this exciting uh, commercial message to another segment somewhere on the other side. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfagelm on DriveThru. Don't wait to keep this podcast alive. Join such Patreon backers as Chris McLaren, Volpine, Jamie Twine, Tom Bowen, and Randy Ship. The hanging chads, the flying balloons, the screaming bunting tell us that we're once more in the confines of the politics hut, but this politics hut could double as a conspiracy corner. As an elliptony hut, as all sorts of other things, because we're going to look at the way that the old-fashioned medicine show uh, has uh, survived uh, to the present day, and uh, particularly the way that it intersects uh, with politics and with the sort of fringe politics that we find in the conspiracy corner. Um, so this was occasioned by Facebook having dropped uh, one of its main uh, purveyors of, of links and uh, these are some nasty links. This is and um, there's some quite vile uh, stuff that this organization was uh, promulgating. And there's a, a site called Natural News, uh, which is a bigger purveyor of 
conspiracy information than Alex Jones, than Infowars. And like Alex Jones, also uh, sells supplements. It started out as a uh, seller of like, you know, organic broccoli uh, pills and stuff, because of course you want your organic broccoli in pill form, I suppose. Uh, so there's this guy named Mike Adams, who uh, initially... Uh, uh, Natural News started selling supplements, but he's actually been involved in in the weeds of a conspiracy town since the early days of the internet. So way back in the before times, before social media, he was a pioneer of email lists, and he set up a separate company uh, called Ariel uh, that also sold email list technology to others. And you can tell it's evil because it's named after one of the worst body text fonts. And, right. Uh, um, so he had a Y2K newsletter before the year 2000 that uh, spread a lot of fear and scaremongering uh, about that. And I remember when I was writing GURPS Y2K or writing my part of GURPS Y2K uh, using the uh, the specific, what was it called, um, uh, 39 unanswered questions about Y2K as a blueprint for uh, the sort of the, the confounding terror of of Y2K that I used in my chapter. So if you're interested in that archaeological uh, conspiracy theory or the archeo- or the archaeology of that conspiracy theory, um yes, great stuff and be uh, informed actual GURPS writing on that topic, which is I think the highest honor a website could have <laughs> had in the 90s. The only good thing that came out of that was with some GURPS from you. So of course any true conspiratorialist who's predicting the end of the world doesn't let the mere lack of the end of the world again in their way, especially when there's lucrative products to be sold. And so he uh, later reinvented himself in the age of uh, social uh, media as uh, this supplement selling site. But And it began, the information on natural news, uh, you expect something kind of granola-ish from that name, right? And, and in fact, uh, the initial news articles had sort of a liberal or leftish kind of spin to them. So there were early ones saying, you know, myths about immigration. Immigration actually helped the economy. Well, that stopped being the message after a while, and so it drifted into anti-vax and chemtrails content, and of course it's selling the trinity of conspiratorial merchandising is supplements, you know, medicinal uh, items of uh, dubious quality, survivalist gear, and of course, gold coins. Which count as both. Right. Yes, that that's a crossover right there for you. Yeah, you can use it as... as um. Uh... As Sir Otto Scared, I'm sure that somewhere there is a colloidal gold supplement to go along with your colloidal silver supplement. I'm sure, yes. And he uh, claims uh, to have invented a miraculous diabetes cure, which cured his own diabetes. Because, you know, if you're going to have a miraculous cure for disease, it's 101 to make sure that it cured your disease. So you have all this fine testimonial uh, data. And he, uh, a fair while ago, uh, decamped for the sunny climb of Vilcabamba, Ecuador, uh, which he praises as a uh, a locus of healthy living where there's no uh, air pollution or noise pollution or frequency pollution, no chemtrails, uh, where coincidentally he's also selling real estate in uh, in Ecuador. Yeah, well, he, he just believes in the product so much he became a first investor. Exactly. Right. And, and of course, I don't want to imply that uh, this is the only side of the spectrum where people buy uh, supplements. The fake health remedy the goop side shall we say industry is is gigantic yeah. and there are lots of people uh with uh it's less overtly political on on the other side of the spectrum it's something like goop but famously uh gwyneth paltrow's goop site sells 
the same kinds of things or some of the same items that Alex Jones sells, but packaged differently. Uh, one has this sort of, uh, you know, feminine Sephora packaging and the other has this uh, grim uh, future where, where there's only war survivalist uh, thing. But It's a tactical vaginal egg. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, both of them, I think, sell the uh, uh, tincture that is pr- supposed to uh, protect you from... Uh, psychic vampires. So that, that's right up our alley here. Um, and because you can't say eleptonic without tonic, the history of medicines and patent cures, uh, have been interwoven, uh, with the, uh, the occult since basically forever, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, literally the founder of chemical medicine theory, uh, Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, Paracelsus, was also an alchemist. Uh, magic and healing were linked before there was, e- before there was either. And then, uh, have been moving back and forth in, uh, response. And as, and as with everything, I mean, as astronomy became more and more the province of people who had to do hard math, astrology rapidly sort of f- flows into that sort of folk uh, belief system, uh, to the extent that now sun sign astrology, which is far dumber than any astrology invented in the Middle Ages, is the most popular astrology in the world. And so, um, and that was invented in the 30s, uh, and you have the same sorts of things with, uh, alternative medicine. Back in the day when medicine was put a leech on and call me in 30 days, uh, any alternative was great. Um, there is some of that cultural lag where you distrust experts, but now that you literally have to have at least two degrees to understand even what is being done to you, there is a very natural response, and especially for something even more important than um, uh, what star sign is your girlfriend under, that is your actual health and the health of your family, that you turn away from those to something that is comprehensible. And sometimes that's relatively harmless and that you're um, turning away also to faith or to something else. But in many, many cases, the what the doctor is saying is scary or expensive or scary expensive and it's like well at least i can cure my cancer with peach pits or at least i can put vibration water on me and um uh, stop the uh, shingles from happening or or at least i'm not compliant with the government conspiracy to keep children safe from polio and measles and so that anti-authoritarian belief uh, mindset uh when it turns against medical authority produces a wide spectrum of responses, many of them not just insane, not just hilarious, but actually dangerous uh, to themselves. And in the case of anti-measles vaccinations, dangerous to lots of totally uninvolved innocent people who have no business being dragged into your nonsensical Jim Carrey belief world. And one question that I have is, is to what extent uh, this is a, obviously the interest in remedies and cures uh, as I think uh, is kind of universal that any culture uh, advanced enough that somebody can afford to buy something to cure themselves of something that they may or may not have is going to have that. Uh, that's universal. Um, and the question then is to what extent the um, interweaving of patent medicines and politics, which also isn't new. For example, Victoria Woodhall, who we've right. uh, talked about in the past, uh, uh, was circus and she combined uh, selling uh, patent medicines uh, with spiritualism and then finally went into uh, uh, politics and was a both a communer with spirits and a uh, pioneer of, uh, of feminist and, and uh, suffragette uh, politics. And, and certainly the American suspicion of authority uh, meant that in that period, doctors uh, in America were much slower to adopt European discoveries. So, for example, sepsis 
uh, took a generation after it was first discovered and uh, hygienic practices were put into place in Europe for American doctors to accept uh, that that could possibly be a thing. And they were quite head up about the fact that it couldn't possibly be an issue and they should continue to probe around uh, with uh, unwashed hands uh, into the uh, wounded bodies of their uh, patients. That, that was good for them, man. So yeah. health hucksterism, universal, is the interweaving of political hucksterism and uh, health hucksterism uh, in any way specifically uh, American? I think to some extent because health hucksterism is about the democratization of the health practice in the way that everything else in America is ideally supposed to be democratized. Law, uh, famously among in America, produces way more lawyers than any other society its size, any other society comparably. I mean, so the notion that that there's an ideological reason to believe that my opinion is as good as that of a doctor, I think is stronger in America uh, than it would be in, say, Britain, although obviously Britain has ample uh, health hucksters of its own. And the sort of the shorter trip from a crowd of people who will listen to you to political influence, again, that's the goal of democracy. If you get a crowd of people listening to you, uh, whether you're a, a movie star or the maker of a beloved uh, hair tonic, then people want to know what you think about everything, and including uh, the Cleveland administration or whatever, right? And so this notion of celebrity politics is American because Americans – pioneered both celebrity and democracy. And so that overlap is strongest, I think, in America compared even to other democratic societies. I mean, now Britain has their own ridiculous celebrity politics, but they, you know, they have sort of a, uh, an outlet for it by, uh, with the royal family. And the royal family is, of course, bred not to talk about politics. So they solve some of that problem. But I mean, obviously the Spice Girls, I'm sure famously must have had dumb opinions too. It's just, you know, no one listens to them in, in, in the rest of the world. So the American blend of any mass movement and politics is kind of the design uh, in a way. And then the job of the Senate is to ignore it. And then that is the that's the safety block on it. And you, by and large, that works. I mean, you got the Food and Drug Administration, but not the rest of the insane nonsense that, say, W.H. Kellogg was promulgating. So, you know, the system basically works. It just takes a generation and a half. And in these modern cases, the politics part of it is the sizzle, whereas the actual uh, items being sold are supplements and uh, survival gear and gold and, and so forth. And so uh, if there's an entrepreneurial effort, uh, it seems like there, if you want to capture somebody who's going to buy stuff in order to reduce their anxiety, uh, it is helpful to increase their anxiety uh, before uh, you do that. And of course, that's also part of mainstream advertising. Yeah, is that, and know, it's part of and it's part of all news media. I mean, it's not just crazy conspiracy people who are being driven by clicks. I mean, if you talk to anyone who's in legitimate journalism, they will say you will say this headline is redonkulously bad, and they will say yes, but. Uh, if they're in an, in a 21st century model, we're paid by the click. Or if they're in even in a real uh, newspaper, they'll say powers that be judge based on which articles get clicks. And that's why you see generally sloppier standards in the news now than you used to pre-internet, because um, uh, not only is there less time to double check things, which is understandable, there is an active incentive to have ridiculous or uh, inflamed claims in a headline because people click through and whether they're clicking through because um, uh, you have to find out the, the truth about chemtrails or the truth about the FDA or the truth about anything else. It doesn't matter. Once you've clicked, you've done your job financially for the, for the website in many cases. And so 
those incentives are being driven just by the nature of the internet and the nature of us as hunting animals. Uh, we have not yet figured out the social antibody to clicking. <laughs> Once we do, please, you know, start doing right. it. <laughs> uh, because it, as you suggest, all journalism is ad driven so that, right. uh, even a, an article, uh, you know, a complex article on uh, urbanism and the relationship between car oriented streets and sidewalks, you know, something that really goes uh, into the nuts and bolts. If you're clicking on that, you can literally hear Robin drooling as he describes this article, by the way. Uh, well, I'm discussing, our, I'm mentioning an article that's dry even for me, but uh, right. that uh, you're still, about transit somebody you're is still excited. getting paid for some ad on there, right? And if I do click right. on that, uh, Amazon is going to show me the item that I've already purchased yesterday and the thought that I will purchase it again or, or what have you. But uh, particularly if you're uh, pitching to the uh, uh, fringes of belief uh, that uh, it, it makes a sense to uh, link uh, the idea of your own bodily purity with the I- people who are also concerned with the purity one way or other of the body politic of their uh, who are more focused on ideological purity and are also probably uh, looking around at their neighbors uh, thinking, oh, are you pure enough to be around me? Are you a contagion that the extremist politics uh, uses metaphors of illness in the way that it categorizes uh, people and tries to divide them up um, and is uh, therefore something that, uh, you know, they're hitting on uh, a closely interconnected ideas, uh, as you know, J- as uh, uh, Jack D. Ripper uh, and his uh, concern for the uh, precious bodily fluids established uh, in 1962. Yeah, I mean, and fluoride, of course, is is one of the classic examples that it was forever and forever, and famously, the desperate concern of the John Birch Society that uh, fluoridation of America's water was a communist plot and going to turn us all into communists. And now, of course, the anti-fluoridation move- movement is in very, uh, just so beautifully, uh, uh, baby blue Oregon. And that's where the anti-fluoridation movement is. And it's because concern for purity doesn't care what you're being concerned about. It's a biological reaction, uh, to being a troop animal where you have to worry about signs of disease in your fellow troop members. And that, uh, that concern can be translated uh, quite easily. And then once you've done it, those memes don't go away. They lay, you know, fallow and inert waiting for the next uh, fever to come along. And then it just connects right up and, and floats along. And, you know, fluoridation is, is one example. Anti-vaccination is another one that for a long time was pretty much confined to uh, the, the not even the right, but like the super religious right. And now is, you know, Jim Carrey and RFK Jr. are the big faces of it. And whatever their other sins, they're not Republicans. So that's one of the ways that all this is just a human impulse. And that is sort of the architectural level on which sites like this work is because there is the human impulse to say, oh, what if this weird feeling of, of, of heat that I'm feeling is not just my anger at whatever I'm reading, but also a symptom that my colloidal silver levels are low. I'd better find out about the supplements. Yes. And that's, and, and that, and that, that drive is being accelerated because everything else is being driven on that same panic response. Now it used to just be that you'd have to shout at people over the radio to get them to do it. And now literally everything is being sold that way. And so that is creating or contributing to, I would say, uh, the sort of social moment where someone who starts their, their kale newsletter is suddenly getting a lot more clicks for, you know, Sandy Hook denialism or something else vile. Because uh, if someone is trying to sell you a cleanse, whether it is a cleanse of your body or a cleanse of society, it's time to, at the very least, 
uh, reached for your wallet and back uh, slowly away. Uh, and it's time for us to back forwards ahead knowingly into this exciting and in no way fringe-inspiring commercial to another perfectly innocuous segment waiting for you on the other side. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing in a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back in time to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And this time, it's a cinema question, so it's going to be Ken and Robin's time machine. I'm going to go along with this one. Uh, And the question comes from Michael Dinos, who asks... With Marvel's Endgame providing a record-breaking capstone to 11 years of world-building, can Time Incorporated go back and replace Zack Snyder with a more capable director so the DC Universe gets the same love that the Marvel Universe got? So, Ken, uh, uh, might I be so bold as to suggest a uh, a Ken-like solution? Sure. Toss it in there. So, uh, this involves uh, Ken... Uh, I'm going along, but you're the one who in 2003 is going to get Chuck Yeager drunk, uh, which will wow. create the sequence of events, which will eventually lead. And this is why. That, is a, not, that may be my toughest mission ever. That is a tall order. I think we should get Zack Snyder to film that mission because <laughs> of the legendary quality of it. Right. The, the trick is not to get Chuck Yeager drunk. That happens in the evenings. Uh, yeah. But that while he is in He's this condition, guy. then you plant the idea in his ear that perhaps that the project that he is uh, working on with uh, Patty Jenkins, the acclaimed director of the uh, movie Monster with uh, Charlize Theron and uh, Christina Ricci, uh, which was her first film that brought her to uh, a great acclaim, uh, that the project that she is uh, pitching with him and is going to spend a bunch of time working on and then not get off the ground, that you're going to encourage him right at the beginning to not bother with that project, that you're going to just tell them the, the chances of getting this off the ground are, are virtually nil, and that then uh, he will then be able to, uh, you know, scotch the project before she spends her crucial window of time when she's still a, a hot director in Hollywood, which, of course, uh, for uh, women directors uh, now as then is uh, is always short. There's a, um, a huge syndrome of uh, women directors who... Uh, have a splashy debut, they do something really great, and then they don't get to make another movie again for another 
five or six years of uh, struggling to get another thing off the ground, whereas a dude in, in their position would often then be able to hop, skip onto another film and another film. And even maybe that second film can be not so great uh, and then move on to another one and still keep going. Uh, but for women directors, it's always tough. And uh, the, when the window of excitement closes... Uh, that's a problem. And so for Patty Jenkins, she, in our timeline, she works on the Ayer film for a while. She works on a Ryan Gosling project called I Am Superman that she still wants to make to this day. Which is not about Superman. Not about <laughs> Superman, but I assume a reference to the R.E.M. song. But of course, what we want is for Patty Jenkins to be big enough that she then uh, is tapped to uh, not only uh, direct Wonder Woman, but several years before that, to be the guiding aesthetic behind uh, the whole series of films. And I, I think, Ken, you would agree with me that that would be a better choice than Zack Snyder? Um, before I agree with you, which I'm going to do, let me just say that I feel like Zack Snyder gets a little bit of a bad hand. Uh, first of all, Zack Snyder is not the guy that you want to replace if you want to replace somebody. The guy you want to replace is the DC head of development uh, John Berg, who is the guy who is always sticking his oar in and ruining things, as opposed to Kevin Feige, who is a, a producing savant, and we'll talk about his magic uh, maybe in a later segment uh, another time. But it's not Snyder's fault that the Warner Brothers film production for their DC universe is so catastrophically cursed. Uh, Snyder also has a vision which is something that very, very few Marvel directors have. It may not be your vision, but at least it's let's do something as opposed to package a gummy bear and sell it to you for a billion dollars. So say what you want. Zack Snyder is actually trying stuff with his films. Um, this is not to say that Patty Jenkins is not a better director than Zack Snyder. I think that's clear. But Zack Snyder gets some unfounded hate on uh, when, for example, Justice League was ruined completely by Joss Whedon, Zack Snyder had very little to do with the ruining. He had probably a great deal to do with, uh, the, <laughs> with the approach of that pool, uh, of, of that pool ball, but he did not fail to knock it into the pocket. That's, uh, Warner Brothers and that's, uh, Joss Whedon. So anyway, given the, uh, the general argument, yes, Patty Jenkins would be better, but the thing is, if she does it in 2003, that is in enough time for all of the, first bunch of Superman films to rise, fall, and drop off the face of the universe, because 2003 is still before the Marvel Universe, and it's before anyone has thoughts of, let's do an extended continuity. Right. In 2003, uh, instead of the Chuck Yeager movie, she doesn't make uh, a DC movie. That's still We're still building her career to the point where she will uh, get to get picked, and then be smart enough to help maneuver things so that uh, she either does an end run around uh, the execs or uh, helps get new execs put in place. Now, another problem, of course, is that um, it's not a problem. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, she has a baby. And yes. that also interferes with her career in the sense that she doesn't want to go do a giant high-pressure bunch of movie shoots while her baby is young. It, so, it results in her doing, uh, a few years later, uh, a lot of prestige television. Yeah. But in this crucial window where she has to get her resume in order so that after the she goes off to television for a while. They they uh, settle on her. She winds up directing the good Harry Potter movie instead of Alfonso Cuaron. 
And the, <laughs> I don't know if I want to sacrifice the only good Harry Potter movie. I mean, it'll well, still be a good thing, one. Right. Normally, that would be <laughs> risky, but I think it's a pretty good swap. And also, Alfonso Cuaron, it's no skin off his nose. He's going to continue to go on. He'll make something do, else great. He'll do something else great right. because he's a dude. He gets more shots at the at the prize, and nobody's going to go, oh, well, uh, his not doing an Alfonso, uh, uh, Harry Potter movie wrecked his career. He's still going to continue to go on. He'll be fine. But also... That good Harry Potter movie will still also be good. Yet what it will also do is establish her ability to uh, handle a big franchise and to work with uh, within studio direction. Because, of course, uh, they uh, even Kevin Feige, when he's uh, plucking indie directors from the uh, from Sundance and putting them in charge of this. Uh, great machinery of the Marvel movie. You gotta follow the, uh, the sensibility or you're out like Edgar Wright was at Ant-Man. And, and which is why Patty Jenkins got bounced off Thor the Dark World. Yes. Which she was hired to direct and then said, <laughs> possibly this script is god awful. I will never direct this. Or possibly <laughs> this seems like just- a terrible. Terrible waste of Christopher Eccleston. She just wanted to use a bright light somewhere, and Marvel was like, I don't know if we can have bright lights. That's not our vision. Yes. Now, of course, Patty Jenkins can't direct all of these movies. No. Zack Snyder didn't direct all the movies. No. They just sort of had... He had he has his aesthetic sort of uh, kind of Frank Miller-inspired uh, thing going on, and I think uh, aesthetically what we would hope that Patty Jenkins would do is understand, as she did in Wonder Woman, the sort of sense of wonder and and lightness uh, that, you know, pre-Dark Knight, uh, DC was associated with and is much better suited for a big uh, mass uh, a- entertainment than the uh, than the sort of 90s revisionist superheroes that, that took uh, kind of the DC comics over. So um, she could, for example, also uh, tap uh, Catherine Hardwick to do something really cool because she... Uh, also, uh, have fell prey to the way that, uh, talented women directors are, are treated. She went from a, a, a cool indie movie, 13, and then got to direct the first of the Twilight movies. And, uh, and they, she sold them on her take and she created the whole aesthetic for that. And then she said, well, I'm going to take a little while to make sure the second one is really good. And so I'm going to need another six months. And, uh, Lionsgate said to her, nope. We don't want it good. We want it fast. And they bounced her unceremoniously. <laughs> they, they may have said, did you forget that it's Twilight? <laughs> well, uh, m- making Twilight more interesting than you expect it to be is, is another big accomplishment and something that uh, could uh, easily be uh, ported over to a Batman movie or a Justice League or perhaps even a uh, not morose Superman. I mean, I, th- I think um, Superman is the, is the real is the real problem here, certainly. And I think that. Certainly, Patty Jenkins, strong possibility. Uh, my other option is to tank Guillermo del Toro's Mountains of Madness project much earlier, since it's already a doomed project. It shouldn't be too hard to early doom it, because he was the guy, because he'd worked with David Goyer on the Blade, on Blade 2, he was the guy who was originally approached to make the Superman movie, and uh, that became eventually Man of Steel. And... Had Guillermo del Toro been the creative vision at the helm of the DC universe, the movies would be no worse, certainly, but they would be more playful, I think. And uh, you would have someone who is a child of sort of um, 80s uh, comics as opposed to 90s comics uh, making the films. And del Toro could have brought as much darkness as you want into the the sort of um, 
uh, horror aspects of Darkseid or, or whoever it turns out to be the bad guys. But uh, he would also have touched on the sort of uh, fun of uh, the superheroes that he managed to do in the first three quarters of Hellboy before that movie slams into a wall. So I feel like, again, we might not get better movies, but I think we'd get an overall better aesthetic. And again, Del Toro himself can't make every movie. So Patty Jenkins, don't worry, we'll still at least let her make uh, Wonder Woman and maybe our other stuff. Who can say? But that's my that's my other option is just uh, ruin Mountains of Madness early so that uh, Del Toro is able to take the Man of Steel job that he is literally offered uh, by Warner. Well, I think we can compromise and have uh, Patty Jenkins as sort of the uh, lead consultant uh, with Guillermo directing uh, Superman. Superman movies traditionally do not have a uh, well-cohesive plot structure, especially in the origin story. So uh, the thing that uh, Del Toro uh, often lacks is something you don't particularly expect in your first Superman movie. So... uh, but uh, who knows? Maybe even Patty Jenkins could uh, tighten that a little up. bit of script doctoring and have uh, mm-hmm. a win-win, some synergy. And if and if she's making Wonder Woman at the same time, because you're doing a genuine universe as opposed to a let's see what this does. You have Del Toro making one, and then you have Patty Jenkins making Wonder Woman three years early. I think that we could really have something there with them feeding off of each other and genuinely collaborating, uh, because that's another thing Del Toro is actually good at is collaboration with other creatives. Uh, in a way that many directors are not. So I think that that would be good. Right. And if his uh, buddy Alfonso Cuaron wants to uh, still do a blockbuster. Batman versus Superman just sitting there waiting for Alfonso Cuaron. Yeah. Well, now that we have uh, rectified uh, the most important part of the universe and resisted the temptation, how is your head after that session drinking with Chuck Yeager? Oh, my God. I I literally have to go back in time and evolve another liver. He's he's <laughs> 70 years old, and I'm and I was nearly dead. Yes. Uh, well, uh, put in a requisition. Oh God! Uh, yes. We'll, uh, hopefully, you'll, you'll you'll have recovered uh, by next week when we'll have yet another show. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Astrogown, Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at Patreon.com/backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from unscrupulous sellers of arsenic-laced medicine by joining such Patreon backers as Rich Spainauer, Aaron Sapp, Alex Johnston, Anton Kulikoff, and Ryan Leibarger. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. I have filled an entire room with our latest design, Valhalla Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.